Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandy Schilace, and today I'm here with Arabella Proffer. Now, I've known Arabella for a long time. She's an artist. She's really a polymath in many ways, capable of so many different things. And today she's here with us to talk a little bit about her life, her work, and her diagnosis and fight with cancer. Arabella, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, we've been friends for so long, and I've known so much of what you do, but I wonder, for people who've never met you or aren't familiar with your work, um, how would you describe yourself as as an artist and as a worker? It's kind of been changing a lot lately because now I've added photographer into the mix, but um, I studied animation and film at CalArts, and I kind of wanted to do that. Mostly I wanted to be in the film industry, but I had always been painting. And at CalArts, if you were in the art department, you got a studio. So I was like, well, a studio sounds a lot better than a cubicle. So <laughs> I stuck with that and I, you know, was doing shows and everything. So I kind of um, stuck with doing the fine art and being a gallery artist. So I kind of fell into what is kind of known as the pop surrealist genre, which is sort of, uh, I guess, figurative work, and it, and it falls into the illustration and surrealism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, I just kept on doing with that. And then now I've added photographer to the mix of, uh, I, I did a, a photography book called The Restrooms of Cleveland, and apparently everyone really dug that. It. So <laughs> it was fantastic. Now, your, your photography is also kind of uh, an interesting style. It's not uh, it's not surrealist, I, I wouldn't say, but yet it definitely has a very specific, I mean, I, I can tell that it's yours, you know, do you, what are your sort of influences for that? Uh, for the photography, I didn't really have any. <laughs> it was just uh, more documenting things, I suppose. My only real rule was don't put the commode in the shot. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's interesting. You can tell it's mine too, because I, yeah, I never, I never used like fancy camera or anything like that. So um, it was just more about what can I get in the shot that kind of uh, gives the vibe of the place, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it very much tells a story. I think as your art does too. Um, some of the earliest pieces that I saw of yours were illustrations of people's lives, and while they're fictitious people, they had whole backstories, and they had this really interesting. Um, world in which they lived. And that that ability of your artwork to tell a story is, I think, um, really important and valuable, even now that you've moved on to things like the the more biomorphic art that you do. Um, yeah, with the um, portraits, um, it was just interesting because I, you know, I would do portraits of made up people. I wasn't writing biographies for them yet or anything, but at shows, um, it became clear to me, you know, people wanted a story behind it because they didn't want to think of one themselves. Uh, They kind of wanted to be told what to think. So I kind of ran with that and I started uh, creating stories for these people. And then um, around 2010 was when I got diagnosed with cancer the first time. 
And that's when I came upon uh, the district medical, uh, the, the district, uh, what, what's it called technically? Is it? <laughs> Medi- the district is- Medical History the- Center and Museum, that's I think. It. Yes, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, and that's kind of like around the time I think I met you, I was stalking you mm-hmm. on Twitter and I didn't realize you <laughs> lived in Cleveland. And I was like, wait a minute, how come we're not friends? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but and, I, and that, kind of... I remember you came to a, sh- uh, a program that I was running at the museum at the time. For our listeners who don't know, I used to work at the Dittrich Medical History Museum. And I remember um, you said that you had actually used some of the medical equipment in some of your paintings. Yeah. So I started going there for research because um, a lot of the, the portraits I was doing, it, you know, kind of the time range between like the 1400s and the 1800s. That was the period I was most interested in art history and for fashion and for uh, medical history as well. So I I think in a way it was sort of channeling my anger at what had happened to me. And um, it was a way to feel better about living in this century than in any Mm -hmm. other century to be treated for anything, especially as a woman. Um, So that was, yeah, around the time that I met you and I, I've been doing research and incorporating that research into those paintings. Right. And I want to I want to take, take a quick minute and kind of talk a little bit about that, because, of course, when I first met you, you were uh, you were still recovering. I think you you had you were no longer in radiation therapy. You had recovered, but you were still uh, dealing with the aftermath of that. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, because I know you and I have spoken about the fact that even our best treatments for cancer today still seem pretty barbaric in many ways. You know, they're very, very damaging to the body. And so um, talk a little bit more about how you handled that, because I know some of your paintings depict quite gruesome things, amputations, uh, loss of an eye, loss of self. And I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that. So when I had cancer the first time, it um, is called liposarcoma. It's 1% of like 1% of all cancers. Um, It was like a genetic thing where the gene tried to repair itself and it kind of just did a misfire. So to treat that, um, they basically sliced and diced my leg and uh, I had to walk with cane for about seven years. Um, And then during my research, I came across a painting of Saints Cosmos and Damien, who are the patron saints of surgery. And it was a painting of someone actually getting the same surgery that I had got for what looked like a sarcoma in the leg. And I was just kind of like, wow. So this treatment, aside from radiation, really the the treatment has been the same Mm -hmm. all these centuries. Um, And my dad died of cancer in 1984. He was actually a guinea pig at NIH. And the treatments that he received then, like, they're not that much different now. So it's, like, kind of strange what has, you know, advanced, like gloves. <laughs> you know, right. gloves, who would have thought? Um, yes. <laughs> and, and gloves are actually kind of a new thing if you look at the history of medicine. Right. I mean, I can remember being a kid and the dentist having his bare hands in my mouth. Right. You know? um, so it's it was just interesting to me to see what things had advanced and what hadn't really. And I've actually Mm -hmm. talked with my oncologists about this. I said, you know, in 50 years, they're going to look back at this at at chemo and be like, you did what to people? You injected Mm -hmm. what into them? 
and they don't disagree with me in any respect. It's kind of like how they treated um, syphilis with mercury. Right. Like it yes. worked, but it kind of didn't. <laughs> yeah, it worked by killing so. you a little bit along the way. And actually, a lot of uh, a lot of chemotherapies are are essentially attacking the whole system in order to get at one part of it. And of course, the trick is trying to get the system through the attack. Um, you know what what you lose in the process. And it's funny you mentioned about design. I think people, when they look at medicine, they so often think about it in terms of strictly STEM. And of course, that's that's not true. There's so much design that goes into the kinds of technologies that we use. And I remember when I worked at the museum, one of the things that surprised me the most is exactly what you're talking about. Not the changes, but the things that stayed the same, you know, the birthing chairs and um, forceps and things like that. They for centuries and centuries and centuries have essentially not changed very much at all. Um, granted, we, we get born in much the same way as we always did. So to a certain degree, you can understand that form follows function. But um, we, we do seem to not always think about the fact that it is an artistic endeavor to treat illness. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I remember looking at the x-ray table that was at the museum and I, I was like, oh, this looks like the x-ray tables today, except they're made with more plastic, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, when you were working on the paintings, you said that in a way it was a help processing the anger. And I, I remember finding the paintings beautiful and yet also incredibly powerful images. They did not seem weak. They seemed strong. And I think that's something that really comes through in most of the work that you've done, including the one that I that I have that I've purchased from you and that is on my wall, um, is that sense that it's really it's really giving us this, this powerful statement about personality. Um, and so my question for you is, how does that transfer over to some of your more abstract works that you're working on now, particularly the biomorphic designs? And, and how has that been part of your your journey in all of these ways? Yeah, so it was strange. I um, one day it was before I knew I even had cancer the first time. Like I felt totally fine, um, and one day I just didn't feel like painting people anymore, and I decided to try my hand at doing abstract again. I, I'd done it before in college, and I was told I should stick with that, but I, you know, I don't like people telling me what to do. So I was like, <laughs> no, I'm going to keep doing figurative work. <laughs> um, but so I did these paintings and um I sent them down to the Baton Rouge Contemporary Arts Center and they sold immediately and I was like oh this is pretty cool maybe I'll stick with these and I came from a place of abstraction there were no advanced sketches or anything um so then I think it was four months later when I got diagnosed and I was shown the MRIs of everything that was going on in my leg and it looked exactly like what I had painted um down to three tentacles wandering around in my calf and the shape of the tumor and everything. And I was like, wow, okay, that's kind of creepy. Um, but then I kept with it. <laughs> there was um, some photos that were taken uh, during one of my surgeries that the surgeon then emailed to me and it kind of looked like what I've been painting recently that month. And so I, I don't know if it's just like a pseudo psychic knowing of what's going on in my body or, or it's just coincidence, but the biomorphic stuff kind of came from that was like just this weird knowing and being in touch with what's going on, but mm -hmm. at the same time, not having any idea of how severe it is. 
Right, right. And I just want to let our listeners know that we, um, if you go to the blog post, which will also have a transcript of today's talk, we will have images of uh, Arabella's painting so you can see some of the works that we're talking about. And Arabella, I know you also have a website and uh, several other places people can see your work in galleries and even purchase. So we'll make sure to put those links there too. Can I ask then, in this in this latter stage, now we know that you have been diagnosed again with cancer, and um, this has been something that has been a shock and and pretty devastating to all of us who know you, and because you are such a, a force, you know, such a, a life force and such an artistic uh, giant in our lives. I wonder how has this affected your ability to work, your desire to work? How do you want to to see um, to see this in the course of your of your work as you're dealing with this new diagnosis? Um, I haven't been able to work at all. So um, like nothing, nothing like it, it sounds nice and I would like to, but then it's just, I physically can't mentally can't I'm on morphine and oxycodone like 24 seven. And that's just going to be more and more the case. Um, so I would like to eventually be able to do that, but like, I can't even drive. Um, so it's just been kind of debilitating not only that but like in a pandemic so I can't even you know go travel or go do things that I would like to wrap up sort of in my life um and I'm just like waiting for everyone to stop being a jerk and wear a mask so I can go (laughs) do those things but I mean it's kind of strange I I was a very morbid child um I you know like I said my dad died when I was six and I used to go to the cemetery all the time and hang out just because I thought it was a pretty place. And I used to think like, oh, an obelisk. When I die, I want one of those, you know, or like, I want a really cool crypt with like, you know, a Tiffany stained glass. And I used to think about those things all the Mm -hmm. time. So now I'm in this strange position where I, you know, haven't really been given a timeline, but I sort of have. And so I had to start making plans, which is strange. Um, I mean, it's a good thing because it's, less work for my family and my husband to have to do, but I'm like, wow, it's like planning your own funeral. It's kind of like planning my own last party. It's kind of weird. Um, and I actually put in there that I want an obelisk I like <laughs> and it. I, and I dictated <laughs> how I want my makeup to look. <laughs> I was like very, very specific about a lot of things just because I've been to services of friends where like the death was sudden and you know, you're like, what would they want? So I'm like, really detailed in all my plans and everything and like when I was a kid too I remember I asked my mom to make me a funeral dress like that I could wear to funerals <laughs> so now I'm like okay well what do I wear in my casket you know and so I'm, I'm oddly like kind of okay with everything and at peace with it but it's it just sucks for my family and friends though so it does suck for your friends <laughs> yeah I, none of us are dealing it with it very well um do you know, when, when we met, partly um, you had followed me on Twitter, partly, I think, because of the death book that I had done, a book called Death Summer Co. about grieving. And I, too, am, am fascinated, interested in grief rituals and cultures and in those kinds of plans. You know, what what do we want at the end of life? But there is such a big difference between I am going to die and I'm going to die soon. And it, it changes the way I think that things just suddenly seem really concrete that didn't used to. And um, I know mortality is always near, and especially during a COVID pandemic, right? There's a lot of it about. But to be able to, so with such clear-sightedness, be able to think about not just 
the event, but even the design of the event, um, again, is just, you're always an artist to me, Arabella, I think, whether you're painting or not. <laughs> now, I think I'm just really good at compartmentalizing, maybe, like, I probably would have made a good CIA field agent or something like go. that. <laughs> but yeah, I just remember, yeah, like, my, my grandparents were really horrified that um, my mom had a wake for my dad, because, you know, they, they were like, very Protestant, you know, stock like you know they, they were from a background where you don't do that kind of thing and whereas my mom's side of the family you know they were Irish so they mm -hmm. had those traditions so it's it's actually interesting how like in America in particular everyone's just so scared of it whereas like every other country they kind of use it as like it, you talk about in your book it's a way for the community to come together or you know they would prop up the the corpse in the house for like a week, you know, for yeah. everyone to come pay respects or like you, you would never have that here. Um, but I, the closest thing I could find was I, I did find it is legal in one lake region in Minnesota for you to have a Viking funeral, which in actually sounds, <laughs> it sounds really interesting. I would actually be into that, but like you have to get a permit, ahead of time, <laughs> like all that stuff. But it's just, yeah, in America, like it, it's interesting how, terrified everyone is to even like talk about it even when they know it's going to happen right. um and it's like done in this abstract way whereas every other culture it's yeah. kind of in your face it's kind of a lot of euphem euphemisms that are used uh even around people's pets and things you know uh, rather than an actual open discussion it, it's a lot harder for people i think you're right um at least i found that in in the book that i researched the western culture doesn't deal with death particularly well and the u.s is of the Western nations is particularly bad at it. Um, so you're, you know, you're absolutely right. So let me ask you, what, what would you like your legacy to be as we, you know, look forward to this future? We have your works, we have things that we can look at and think about, but what, what do you most want to be remembered for? I mean, I would most want to be remembered for the paintings and the art. Um, the rest of it, I'm, I'm just not sure. Um, I've been asked that a few times and mm -hmm. I kind of feel like my legacy isn't really up to me to dictate. Mm -hmm. um, true. But yeah, well, like, it's just so weird. Like I was told, you know, by my doctors, they tell me after the fact, they'll never tell me <laughs> beforehand. They, one was like, you know, we thought you wouldn't survive past August. And then another said, I thought you'd be gone by September. So it's just kind of thinking even further than like a few days at a time is really hard. So. Right, right. Well, I can tell you that one of the things that has meant the most to me in all of the years that I've known you is your absolute grasp of the now and of, of living exactly that, that you don't necessarily focus on a lot of way far away plans. But, you know, you've been places I never would have thought of going, you know, you've, you've traveled, you've been to Egypt, you've been to Morocco, you've, you've gone places and done things. What did you used to tell me? Go to that party, go to that art opening obviously not during a pandemic but no um, but once <laughs> once the pandemic's over yeah i mean my my whole mantra has been leave the damn house like mm -hmm. ever since 2010 because you know i was stuck in bed for i don't know how many months against my will and it's like you know there's only so much so much netflix you can take um and people don't i think now they're starting to realize what it's like to be cooped up against your will mm, yeah <laughs> so but my whole thing was like, even if you're an introvert, like, come on, just leave the house. Like you never know what's going to happen, like fun adventures and whatnot. And I, yeah, I started traveling a ton because I kind of was taking my own advice, but I was also still 
sort of looking over my shoulder on the off chance my cancer came back. But as the years went by, that was like less and less likely. So it's very strange that it would come back almost to the day um, 10 years later. But yeah, you never know. Leave the house. Go do things. If you get invited somewhere, party, go on a date, whatever it is, go do it. <laughs> go do it and don't don't waste your options. Um Again, this is Arabella Proffer, who is an artist in Cleveland, Ohio, who has done so many interesting things in her life. We'll have a bio clip of her on the blog that is attendant with this podcast. Arabella, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on, as it's always been a pleasure to know you. Oh, thank you so much. And to our listeners, once again, thank you for being part of the Medical Humanities Conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore BMJ.